Hey, Mockingcasters, RJ here. Before I begin, I wanted to give you a quick update on the podcast. At the beginning of this year, we had about 3,500 listeners. Now we're closing in on 8,000. Thank you so much for listening and for spreading the word. Thanks also for all of your encouraging emails, texts, and messages. They really mean a lot. It's so good to know that you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy recording. As you may have noticed, unlike other podcasts, The Mockingcast doesn't have any advertisements. We depend entirely on the generosity of you, our listeners. If you'd like to make a donation, you can go to mbird.com and click support at the top of the page. You can make a one-time donation, but what would really help us is a recurring monthly donation, which will also come with a free subscription to The Mockingbird magazine. Again, that website is mbird.com slash support. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. It's been a great 2019, and we can't wait for 2020. And now, on with the episode. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, okay, you exennials, or <laughs> what do you call a person who's a cusper? Someone who is on the cusp of, uh, I was heard this term just recently, that if you are a person on the cusp of the generational divide between millennials and Generation X, you're a cusper. RJ. Well, there you have it. Okay, cusper. Call me and, General Cusper. And Sarah, okay, millennial. Yeah, I was How like, just to be guys? fair, you guys are much older than I am. So much older. <laughs> so much older. Wiser. Well then, enlighten us, RJ. How you doing? What's the word on the on the uh, exennial street? Uh, doing good, cruising right along, doing okay. Uh, things are good in Houston. I, I nothing tremendously amazing to report, um, but but generally good. I'm feeling feeling good this afternoon. Excited <laughs> to talk about these uh, these articles. It's like RJ doesn't even shop at Trader Joe's. Like when I hear him talk, I'm like, do you have no joy in your life? Like I have no joy in my life. If you go to Trader Joe's right now, you can get wax covered amaryllises for Christmas. They only let you buy four at a time. So I've gone every morning. Um, I'm just like sharing shopping tips now. Last last week it was. I jeans. was going to say that's what you're doing. We're going to get some new sponsors here on the Mocking Cast. <laughs> Trader Joe's brought to you by Trader Joe's Wax Amaryllis. Yeah, I go in every day. Like a couple weeks ago, I went up to the guy and I was like, "Do you? Do you sorry, do you know when you're going to get the wax amaryllis in?" And he like doesn't look up from his computer and he's like, "We're going to get them in a week, ma'am." You're like, "You have to be here at 8 a.m." And I was like, "I am feeling very aggressive about them." And he's like, "I know, sweetie." Like and didn't look up. <laughs> You're not the only one. Yeah, I was like, okay. <laughs> How are you doing though, Sarah? What what else is it new in 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 H Town? Oh, we're great. I uh, decorated that. That's why I'm like obsessed with Christmas. Like I don't follow any of the Advent rules because it makes my life miserable to wait until we're in the throes of like church Christmas party madness to then try to decorate the damn house. So we're um I've I've like decorated for Christmas. We're putting up the tree tomorrow. You know, it's um. People are giving me like indiscernible lists for what they want from Santa Claus. Uh, older people in our household, my son, are saying things like, I know Santa's not even real, just for like dramatic effect in front of the five year old. So it's a lot to navigate. Oh, we're getting, I get that a lot right now. Ooh. There's a lot of debate about Santa's veracity. Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, what are you it, trying to pull on us, Dad? I yeah. just uh, dodge. I duck and weave. <laughs> I yes, don't know what to say. 100%. I'm like, do you want stuff? Then shut your mouth. <laughs> yeah. You better ask Santa because I'm not getting you anything. <laughs> um, well, OK Boomer is a meme that has taken, I guess, the internet and the country by storm over the last couple of weeks. And there's a long article in, uh, on Vox about it by Aja Romano. This is sort of the latest uh, of frontier, you might say, or battleground of generational warfare, uh, this polarizing meme, which is simply OK Boomer. It's an attempt by millennials and Generation Z, which is younger than millennials, to both encapsulate 
this circular argument and reject it entirely. Uh, what I mean is, okay, boomer is meant to be cutting and dismissive. It suggests that the con- conversation around the anxieties and concerns of younger generations has become so exhausting and unproductive that the younger generations are collectively over it. Okay, boomer implies that the older generation misunderstands millennial and Gen Z culture and politics so fundamentally that years of condescension and misrepresentation have led to this pointedly terse rebuttal and rejection. And by the way, what what they're talking about is you you, you hear uh, you know bad advice or advice that sounds like it would have worked you know um, I don't know forty years ago and the younger response is to say okay boomer whatever you say or about saving money or moving out of your parents basement and it's always this sort of an okay boomer it's a it's a way to dismiss any of that noise uh, and baby boomers are not thrilled about it there's a, there's a real reaction to it going on as you can probably understand uh, uh, Romana wrote baby boomers failing to understand the point of okay boomer is well the point of okay boomer. The broader background to all this resentment is the perceived irony that while boomers nitpick and judge younger generations for their specific choices, it's the boomers' own choices that created the bleak socioeconomic landscape that millennials and Gen Z currently face. This is all arguably a new iteration of the kids these days on the one side and parents just don't understand on the other generational cycle that every era experiences. But because of the cultural and political moment we're in, the stakes feel much more fraught and high risk than other generational clashes. To the TikTok teens, and that's the the social media uh, platform that a lot of younger teens are using and where OK Boomer really sort of exploded, uh, the Boomer's sensitivity to the meme just makes them hypocritical. They feel as if they can say whatever they want about our generation and no repercussion, a young woman named Lepera told Vox. In the end, the debate around OK Boomer might be another iteration of the endless parade of internet-fueled ideological debates in which neither side is listening to the other. For frustrated millennials and teens, OK Boomer is an emotionally valid response to boomer condescension, but to frustrated baby boomers, it sounds insolent and disrespectful. You say, okay, boomer, and I hear your entire generation has irrevocably destroyed human civilization. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off, shall we? So this is, it really came to my attention very recently uh, at a dinner party with a friend. Shout out to uh, Stephanie Fishwick. Uh, and it's all over, it's, it, it's become something that... Um, some boomers have are, are, are saying that uh, baby boomer generation is saying that the, the the phrase "okay boomer" is is like a racial slur almost. Uh, Calm M- down. NPR snowflakes. did a long thing snowflakes. about it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's like they say snowflake, we say okay boomer. It's right. this the latest uh, you know real. Um, there's real resentment behind it, I think, but it's also an attempt to really deal with the reality. I think of being told to um, to get your act together all the time, and, and uh, w- without real a deep understanding of what that act, what what that process actually looks like today in a world of smart technology and gig economies and uh, you know global capitalism that the boomer generation didn't really have to deal with, or at least not until they kind of created it. So, a lot of antipathy, a lot of division. Um, what do you guys think? Is this, is this fresh to you? So we already decided before the show that um, I was going to be the law and RJ was going to be on the, the gospel on this subject. So, Is that what we do every week? That's kind yeah. of our thing, I feel <laughs> like. So we're like, away. Really, we're really clear about this one. So law goes first. Um, first of all, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. I yeah, <laughs> I mean... Honestly, I'm filtering myself a lot right now. Um, And the last thing, you know, there's an anecdote I'm sure I've told on this show before, but, you know, as a clergy woman, one thing I've written about this that that I face a lot is this age difference with other women clergy. So, you know, I was at an event several years ago, and it was to honor, you know, some of the first clergy women to come through. And I was the only young woman that showed up for it. And they all looked at me and said, why haven't, why, why doesn't your age group do more to work for the pronouns of God to be more gender neutral? Because they thought, you know, when they got into the ministry that surely by 1994, we'd all be calling God she, right? And like, it has not worked out that way. 
And then I came right back at them and said, why don't you care about the fact that there's no childcare at any event that clergy are supposed to be at? Like, it just, it, it, there is this real, I mean, that is why I feel like I can be the law on this. There is a real divide there that it feels like we can't even kind of talk across sometimes. I will say the only thing that I sometimes feel like disconnect us does connect us. And I think that um, it's why our work at Mockingbird is really valuable is the gospel. Because I think the gospel has been one way that I've seen that I've connected with people of that generation, because we all know what suffering is. We all know what struggle is. We all know how much we need Jesus. And I think when we can connect on that theologically, um, that's a way for a lot of these walls to fall down. But you got to be talking to somebody who's willing to connect on that theologically. So anyway, that's all I have to say. I have spoken. RJ? Um, I've known about this for a little while. And usually when I've heard older people complain about millennials, um, my, my stock response has been like, well, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But like, even if that's true, why do you think they ended up that way? You know, that nothing comes from nothing. You know, Sarah, I think you said at some point, you know, everyone has a history, everyone has a past, everyone is the way they are for a particular reason, that there may be some generational truth to that. But, you know, maybe millennials are hopping around jobs because they saw their parents keep the same job with the same company for 30 years and then get, um, you know kind of abused at the end. You know, they lost their pension in the Great Recession or something, and they thought to themselves, well, if a company's not going to look out for me, like, why should I be looking out for the company? So, um, I don't know. <sighs> Lack of self-righteousness, victimhood, victimization, accusations, um, it's just, it's at the end of the day, obviously, it's a zero-sum game. You know, I, I feel a little bit of the angst and the anger of the millennial generation, um, you know, not necessarily... If, for myself at the present moment, but looking into the future as I'm looking at paying a college for college and how expensive that's going to be. And um, I, I shudder to think what it's going to be in 15 years when my youngest son has to go to college. It's going to be six figures a year. I, I have no doubt. And I don't know how that's going to work out. Um, not at um, all, Miss. So I just not at all miss. Well, okay. even state. I don't know. Have you looked at all miss recently? <laughs> I don't know, man. State school ain't what it used to be. It, I mean, UT in state is like what you know with housing and everything's like twenty five grand. Mm. You know, which is crazy. Like in state is without anyway. That's that's neither here nor there. But that's definitely where I'm living right now. And at the same time. Um, these kind of yeah, it's just not helpful. Like, what is what is it going to accomplish? I don't know. And this is a little bit um, social historical, but I feel like there have been some books written recently about how the the unfettered economic expansion experienced in the United States from the 1950s to the 1980s, basically, or maybe even through the Great Recession, was kind of an aberration in world history. And maybe um, maybe life is just more difficult than that. You know, maybe we're getting back to uh, you know the way things. Um, uh, sort of always were. You know, I'd like to think that things are going to get better and easier, um, but maybe that's just not, maybe that's not true. I don't know. So I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying not to complain about it. I'm trying not to stress out about it. I'm trying to remember there's a God in heaven, but I'm also a little, like, there's a little to me delicious irony in the fact that people have been complaining about millennials for like, you know, five years or a decade. And now finally there's, there's a, there seems to be an effective response at least. So I'm a little bit on both sides. Well, and the other thing I would say is, like, in college ministry, like, I've had different conversations with adults about, like, you know, people in their 50s, 60s about being in college ministry, and they'll be like, millennials, am I right? And I'm like, no, they're not millennials anymore. Like, this is a whole other generation. Like, no, yeah. It, but it has become the this. The I generation or like, whatever they call them. My gener like, my generation of millennials, it's become, like, shorthand for, like, lazy assholes like and i i don't know i just don't think that's that's actually not what we are um i think what hurts me most is when people who are millennials like who i like will be around and maybe people i don't know are more i don't know sometimes i think people kind of can go into more like self-righteousness kind of posture in church circles but like church circle people will like talk badly about millennials and they are a millennial and i'm like no, like please don't i don't know so i'm i'm sensitive i am a snowflake so i think at the, the end of the day identity politics is not terribly helpful 
you it's know, true, uh, yeah, dealing, yeah, dealing with people true. as groups and not as individuals. It's just, true. I just don't like, what is the point? Right. What is I mean, the point? it's, it's you never know? ever works when you're in a fight with, you know, someone you love and you just be like, well, you're just, you're just saying that because, you know, you're, you're a boomer or you're just saying that because you're a woman or you're just saying that because, you know, you grew up in the South. I mean, it may be, there might be some truth to some of it. But in the mm-hmm. moment, the person feels nothing but judged and they want to get out of that box mm-hmm. and they're going to try to fight it to get out of that box by, you know, actually probably overcompensating. And it's a real way to, I know that life is so confusing that we just want to label everyone into oblivion. But um, a lot of these, a lot of this generational warfare, it, I mean, I, I, I have, I, I, I deal with, I, I, like Sarah, I work with college students and I notice certain trends and it's impossible to get them on the phone and all this sort of stuff. And sometimes, you know, just like anyone, you have your exasperated moments, but it always boils down to why can't they just be more like me, you know? Mm, and yeah. that is the height of self-righteousness in which, which I think that the Christian faith, at least the law, is a, uh, a full-scale assault on. And so, um, it's a place of enormous entrenchment. And there's, it's funny, but that a lot of the, some of the divisions in our society, as we're going to keep talking about, are like are seen as terrible and some of them are seen as somehow okay. And like the generational divides I think are just as much there, but they're not sexy or I guess, or they're not saying like, well, we're really trying to bridge generational divides. Most people are saying we're trying to bridge racial divides. We're trying to bridge political divides or national divides or the gender divide. But this, uh, this generational divide thing is very real and it's only getting, uh, worse. And I wonder, you know, when we talk about the divisions in our country, this is one that I think is a deceptively entrenched and from which people are not really being honest about their uh, resentments. And to, like, if we're not able to be honest, but also without having our, our self-righteousness propped up, I, I don't know what the answer is outside of a, a further retreat into our own little corners where we just think of dismissive ways to roll our eyes at each other. So... I mean, I feel very self-righteous right now post my rant, Um, (laughs) but I don't know. I think church is like actually one of the last places that like deals with the generational stuff in a powerful way. Um, It's like, I mean, you know, I'm always advocating for people to go to church. I know that, but like it is like an oddly comforting thing to see people of all different ages in the same room together towards the same purpose. I mean, that's a very rare thing. And it forces us into sort of awkwardness and into conversations with one another and and honesty with one another that, like, I don't actually find in other places. Um, So, I don't know. I mean, I think there's something redemptive to be said there. But, yeah, it's funny, like, how quickly... It's funny how quickly the frustration can really turn into righteousness, self-righteousness. And rage. In ra- oh, girl, Dave, I got talking- so much rage, yes. <laughs> Dave, as you were talking, it reminded me of something a therapist friend said to me, which is that the one of the real keys to, I don't know, healing or working through interpersonal conflicts is curiosity, mm. you know, and actually asking questions of the other person, like not just waiting for your turn to talk, but if, if it's clear that you're in some sort of conflict with someone else, that you're angry at them or they're angry at you or you're angry at each other, to start to ask questions like what how, how did that feel for you what what were you what were you going through tell me more about that to try to um, drill down on them as a person which of course is is uh, just another way of talking about compassion or, or empathy um, and then generationally speaking that reminded me of something that you know Saint Dolly said on one of the recent <laughs> podcast mm-hmm. episodes um, that you can never really know your parents. Remember that, Sarah? Oh, she said yeah, you, can, yeah, you yeah. can never really know your parents. And yes. the host, Jad Abramond, is like, is that is that true? Like, is that really true? That can't really be true. Yeah. And then he goes back and talks to his um, Lebanese father, um, who immigrated to the to the States, about uh, his father's childhood. And suddenly Jad realizes it's 100% true. Like, he doesn't actually know his father because he's never asked him any questions. You know, he assume, has assumed that he knows who his father is, but he doesn't actually know um, the, the kind of the driving forces in his father's life. And it opens up a whole new world of understanding and compassion and love, really. And he already loved his father, but just opened up a, a totally new window um, through the music of Dolly Parton um, into his Lebanese father, which is amazing. Um, and it just made me wonder, like, how 
how curious have I been with my parents or grandparents or that's, you know, it's a weird thing to ask, but I think if you're, especially if you're mad at them, um, to try to get to know them better and to understand where they're coming from and what drives them, if they're willing to share that with you might, might create, um, a little more love and compassion. Mm. Well, let's talk about another divide, but this the real theme of this episode, I think, is you pointed out, RJ, and looking at the, the various articles, is is hope and grace in the middle of division. Because this next piece, uh, Alan Jacobs, the wonderful um, thinker and author and professor who spoke at Mockingbird a couple of years ago, he put this on his uh, personal blog and said, you know, I, I did not expect the most powerful article about Christianity I would read this year, or at least in the last six months or something like that, is would come from the New York Review of Books. And it is an article called A Tale of Two Churches, and it was written by Batya Ungar Sargon, who is, uh, sounds like she's... Um, a young Jewish uh, journalist who is in New York City, and that, that comes into it, as I'll uh, explain. It's a story about um, uh, two pastors and actually two churches with the same name. Both of these churches are called The Refuge, and they're both near Greensboro, North Carolina. One is in Kannapolis, North Carolina, one's in Greensboro. Uh, the uh, pastor of the white, sort of more mega church, is named Jay Stewart, and the pastor of the small, and he's sort of uh, late 50s, I think. And the pastor of the uh, small black church is named Derek Hawkins, and he's in his early 30s. And they, it, it be, the story begins in 2016 after one of the, uh, another race uh, or shooting of an uh, innocent young uh, black man in Charlotte and there, these racial tensions that are sort of just building, you know, that was a terrible year for that in this country. Um, but I guess the day before the big sh- one that happened in Charlotte, these two men had decided to merge their churches, both of which are named The Refuge. They said that a pastor Derek uh, realized that he and Pastor Jay were being called to tell a different story, that their relationship, guided by the Spirit of God, was where a new America would be reborn. Pastor Derek realized that the equality his people, and again, Pastor Derek is uh, the young black man, um, the equality his people so desperately sought would only come through getting out of one's echo chamber through the building of relationships. To many religious peoples, uh, Ungar Sargon writes, there's no such thing as coincidence. Pastor Jay and Pastor Derek felt acutely the prophetic nature of their union taking place just the day before the shooting. It felt as though in the midst of the chaos and confusion, God was using them to write a better story. The Lord had guided them to their merger at exactly the right time to redirect the anger and pain in the community to a higher holy purpose. We just have to see the bigger picture of what God is doing Pastor Jarek said. So we're merging together what heaven will look like. Now, it, it, it goes on, and she traces I, quite expertly, I think, the, the, the various ways that American church life is so, mostly, it's, she seems to imply, self-segregated, and the great, you know, uh, Martin Luther King uh, saying that the, the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning from 10 to 11 a.m., um, Anyway, she uh, Greensboro is where the famous sit-in at the Woolworth, uh, you know, uh, counter happened, where some black students uh, decided they wanted to be served at a uh, non-integrated. Uh, soda pop fountain, and they just sat there, and it finally there's a big museum to it in Greensboro. And so uh, uh, this young journalist uh, Ungar Sargon goes and visits the the museum, and she said, driving out of Greensboro, I felt wrung out. Pastor Jay, who she spoke with beforehand, was right. The museum was like Yad Vesham. That's the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. But when I walk through Yad Vesham, I don't have to feel guilt. I only have to feel anger at what was done to us. In the Greensboro Museum, this sin was not someone else's. As an American, it was mine. This country's sins against African Americans are grave indeed. I thought about something surprising Pastor Jay had told me, about how unworthy of God's love he felt. He saw himself as so hopelessly fallen, so wretched, that only the grace of God, which allows Jesus' sacrifice to cleanse us mortals, could make their relationship possible. He had teared up describing how much compassion on God's part it took to grant this grace. In Judaism, she writes, we don't have the concept of grace. We aren't born steeped in sin, but in a neutral state. You're worthy of God's love as long as you follow his commandments. And when you fail in sin, you can earn his, back his love with teshuva, repentance. 
Was there a form of repentance that could restore us and make us worthy of love, worthy of pride as a nation? Or was the sin of our history too grave? Would only grace do? And if so, who could grant it? Now, it's a very, uh, again, the, this, what, what looks like a story about these, uh, this, these two pastors and their congregations actually becomes a story about the writer herself, Batya. She uh, finishes by saying, I went to a service at the Kannapolis campus of the refuge. That's sort of the white campus. Like the Greensboro campus, the room was dark and cavernous. The stage was lit up by flashing colored lights as if we were at a rock concert. Three people were singing, two women and a man, and while they sang, a black man was preaching from the floor in front of them. There were 40 or 50 people when I arrived, whose numbers would rapidly swell to about 500 before I left, and there seemed to be about a dozen black families standing among the white ones, everyone swaying to the music, many with arms outstretched. Show us your glory, one of the singers sang. Jesus, you change everything. Pastor Jay walked to the front of the room, but before he started preaching, he told the crowd he wanted to introduce a new friend. You guys know that God's put something on this house as it relates to racial reconciliation, he said. And it's interesting that we got a call just a couple of weeks ago from a journalist in New York City who had run across our story just doing some research on the internet and asked if she could come down and interview myself and Pastor Derek. Batya Ungar Sargon, could you come down here? This is Batya. Everyone in the room clapped as I made my way to the front of the auditorium. Can a couple of our pastors gather around Bacha, and can you just join me as we pray for her today? Pastor Jay asked. A group of pastors and worshipers gathered around me of all races. Their hands reached out for me and found me, and I felt tears gathering in my eyes. Against my will, they began to flow. Lord, we thank you that Batya is here and that she's able to attend the refuge today. And thank you, God, that she ran across our story, Pastor Jay prayed. We don't think that was an accident. We believe the providential hand of God led her to our story. God, you continue to breathe life on what we've done here at the refuge, Pastor Jay went on. Father, we just pray over this work that it will be used by you to bring racial healing and racial unity in our nation. Bacha writes, I lost the battle with myself and wept openly. I wanted so desperately to believe what Pastor Jay believed, that a benevolent, divine, forgiving force was at work healing our nation, helping us right the wrongs and atone for the sins and reach beyond the current situation of denial and distrust of black communities decimated by state-sanctioned violence and theft. Could the proof that the battle was slowly being won be found here, where Pastor Jay and Pastor Derek had joined forces to fight fear and hate? Three years into the merger, the refuge remains united. Pastor Jay's congregation in Kannapolis now numbers 4,000, and Pastor Derek's community has swelled to 250 families. Through their love of Christ and their love for each other, Pastor Jay and Pastor Derek have guided their communities through any divisions that might threaten their unity. Could theirs be a model for healing our nation? I asked Pastor Derek what he thought a healed America would look like. Valuing each other, loving each other, appreciating each other's backgrounds and differences, he said. It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but it means that we have to embrace and accept and walk in love. That's what a healed America looks like. But healing also requires taking ownership of the past and acknowledging the injustices that persist. We have to call it what it is and embrace it and heal from it, Pastor Derek said. But understand that sometimes, walking and healing, you embrace pain. It doesn't mean that you're not healing. I mean... Uh, damn, I, I just think that that's, um, this woman comes from New York and is, uh, I think, skeptical and then finds herself in the midst of actual racial reconciliation that doesn't seem contrived or paternalistic or overtly uh, making things worse somehow. Uh, and it, it really challenges her entire narrative about Christians and about uh, people from, from the South and from that part of the country. Uh, but mainly, this, this thing that she stumbles on about grace, and you know, I think a lot of, there are New Testament scholars that would not want to like, agree with what she says about her own religion. But um, I was just undone by this picture of hope that she almost was at pains to disbelieve, and yet found overwhelmed by and walked away. It's a very hopeful piece and it's hope in the midst of the, like the most entrenched divisions that we can imagine. But what did you guys think of it? I was totally blown away. I, I was just, it was so unexpected and so beautiful and so hopeful. And I think 
You know, in the midst of the incredible division we see in our country right now, it is so easy to become cynical and jaded and to lose hope that that something like this is possible. You know, um, and I think there's, you know, there's a myth, I think we believe sometimes, which is that in order to um, reconcile, in order to live together, in order to heal, we have to agree on everything. And that's just so not true. And she makes that so clear in her article that there are um, significant political differences between these two communities, but that they don't let that get in the way. You know, which to, she says, you know, to all my New York liberal friends, they're like, how can that not get in the way? Nothing could possibly be more important than, the polit- than politics in America at this present moment. And yet both these pastors say, you know, if, if we let our political differences get in the way, it's, it's a sign of a lack of spiritual maturity. Because what we're talking about, the kingdom of God, reconciliation, um, is so much more important, so much more the heart of God, so much more the heart of Jesus, and all that other stuff we are willing to set aside for that cause. Um, and so I was hugely convicted by it. Um, and Dave, you know, I've been, I was convicted by something you, I think you said last episode or maybe past couple episodes that you, you said that you felt like one of the reasons why churches may be struggling is because there's no urgency to the message that there has to be a real sense of urgency that we're here to do something for a sense of purpose. And, um, and I agree with that. And I think also that urgency can be scary sometimes because there's a, a fear that urgency can become alienating and that if the cause becomes more urgent than the call to love people, that it can actually be um, detrimental to the cause of the gospel and to, to, um, to the church. But to see these two um, men have such a sense of urgency about what they're doing, but to carry forth their calling with such humility and compassion and grace and honesty and transparency, you know, really living in the light, it just seems like, it feels like a miracle. Um, it, it is a miracle. Um, and I also, I love how it happened, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't something contrived. It was because the, um, the black pastor was driving along one day and saw a, a billboard. He was like, hey, that's, that's the name of my church, but it's not my church. I'm going to go check out that church. So he went to the church and was moved to tears by what he found in this white congregation and could, and just thought about it on his way, wept all the way home from the service, it said, because he was like, these are my people. And then, so he called um, the, the white pastors, can we get together? And they formed a real relationship. Like it was so clearly a work of the Holy Spirit um, that led to this. It wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a plan, you know, it was a movement. Um, it wasn't an, and so an initiative. All, yeah. yeah, exactly. Not, yeah, it was not an initiative. <laughs> It was just, a, it was, it was um, following the sort of uh, irresistible leading of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, yeah, urgency, but urgency born of the Spirit, um, urgency that always remembers the call to, to love and put people first, um, and then that is willing to set aside differences that at the end of the day um, don't matter, or at least matter a whole lot less um, then uh, become the kind of uh, church that Jesus prayed for and that Paul talked about when he said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And um, just that even something like this is possible, um, incredibly hopeful and really, and genuinely moved. Like, I want to go check. I need to check this place out. <laughs> you know, we got to go check it out. Um, so those are my thoughts. I um, I kept thinking about like this week we're going to, for Thanksgiving, we're going to go to the, to the Delta, to Mississippi. Um, and I kept thinking about um, how hard it is to be from there. Um, how hard it is to be from a place that has created so much pain um, racially that stories like this almost seem impossible to me. Um, you know, they had an election recently in my home state and it was just a, the outcome was really tough on a lot of people. And sometimes it feels like people are choosing against their neighbor in a really powerful way. Um, and then today, actually, when I was driving, I heard a story about a young man named Isaiah Hickman, who at 13, uh, he like, he did like the kind of thing a dumb 13 year old, he actually has ADHD. They said in the story would do, he like took his brother's BB gun and like went to the, like the bowling alley in Philadelphia, Mississippi and tried to, and, and like 
and robbed a kid. I mean, I'm sure it was scary for the kid and took his cell phone. And he got picked up and they put him in adult prison. And he was in solitary confinement for a long time because of his safety with the adult prisoners. And he finally got out at 15 and they asked him how he felt. And he said, you know, I'm 15, but I feel like I'm 28. And I like, I had to pull the car over because I was like, what hope is there for Isaiah? You know, what hope is there for these young black men in this, you know, in this country and specifically where I'm from that like at 13 years old, you know, not much older than my son are treated this way. And then I hear stories like this and I think maybe there's actually hope, like maybe actually like and maybe that hope actually can come out of churches. And RJ, I love what you said, because it's not going to come out of churches because we get up and we tell people that we're going to end racism, especially if it's a room full of freaking white people. <laughs> it's not going to work. No one believes that. No one believes you when you say things like that to a congregation. What is going to work is for us to actually like walk in love as Christians. I mean, I love that he uses that phrase. It's a phrase we have in the in the prayer book, to walk in love as Christians, like to the other side of the street, to these other churches and say, you know, we have something to learn from you. Like we have, we, we have testimony from you that we want to hear. We want, we want to share our testimony with you. Like we want to know what you think about Jesus because we think that he's calling us into relationship, into real relationship and not into some weird benevolency. Um, so like, I kind of needed this story today, you know? Mm. Yeah. And, and when, she, when, when the writer also is just like trying to, for it to compute and it just it yes. won't compute. Yes. It won't you know what I mean? And grace, grace does not compute. She's like, it does not she, compute. She basically says, is grace the only hope? Because mm. the sins are too grievous for us mm-hmm. to basically atone And who can dispense it? For. Who can dispense who it? Can dispense right. only, only one, it can only come from one place. Right. You know? I mean, the I, grace that we need. Again, I think that, and, and all of a sudden you're reading this thing and you're like, oh my goodness, God really did send this woman down there. And like, she's, because I'm sitting here crying in Charlottesville. Uh, yes. And yeah, I had the same reaction. thinking about this, and she's she's talking about this in almost antiseptic terms, like this is what these people believe that it was a, mm-hmm. not a coincidence. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there like, well, holy moly, I'm we're surrounded by so much rage and division, and and here she, maybe Pastor Derek and Pastor Jay and Pastor Terry, who is who the the lady who's who she talks to about all these questions. It's just um. Anyway, I'm I'm grateful for it. I kind of kind of couldn't get over it. it. Actually, Sarah, it reminded me also of something you sent us this week of sort of grace in the midst of division. Oh, sorry, RJ. Can I say one more thing? It also struck me that, and this is really convicting for me, that what we are called to do actually at the end of the day, it's it's not it's not complicated. It's not hidden. Mm-hmm. It's just scary. Yes. And hard. Yes. And that I think, you know, every, every church um, has its own particular, um, what's the word I want to use? I don't want to say obsessions, but... Uh, don't say sacred you know, so, cows, that will offend the Hindu I want to say, you know, for, I would say for some churches, it's personal holiness. For some churches, yes. it's, it's, it's a social justice cause. Yes. And I just, I had to, as I was reading this, had to wonder to myself, how often are those obsessions just... Um, defense mechanisms, so the, or excuses to not actually do the work that is just so obviously what we're called to do. You know, to actually clothe the hungry, feed the naked, re- love other people, reach out, and and um, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus on the cross, you know, he took care of our guilt and shame, and he's he's washed it away so we can move forward and step into the world in hope and love. And do I do I actually believe that enough to go and do um, to go and do the work that um, we've been called to do to to preach this message without fear and then to anyway that was that was another thought I had that am I you, you yeah. know though in the midst of it too though they don't idealize this young black pastor they talk about how he no. himself is not somehow out there campaigning for racial justice as important as that is he is a guy who had a nervous breakdown and ended up after it been abandoned yes. by his mother and abused by his mm. step grandfather he had landed in a psychiatric ward this is a man who is whose entire ministry is motivated out of a pers- 
profound sense of his own need and uh, sin and limitation brokenness. and brokenness. Uh, and I, I thought to myself that clearly, you know, he's God's man for this. Um, yeah, I mean, even the thing he says, it's like I almost want to write down the thing from the end. Like, we have to call it what it is and embrace it and heal from it, Pastor Derek said. But understand that sometimes walking and healing, you embrace pain. It doesn't mean that you're not healing. And that's mm. such a powerful word, like in a whole other I mean, it's a whole other direction, but just this idea that like um, that you can be in the midst of pain and also like be healing is just, oh my gosh. I mean, only someone who says things like that would be called into this vocation, you know, it would be called into this role. So, yeah. And that's amazing. And we should also be said that, that, that at no point does it make it sound like these are a bunch of sort of uh, progressive people, by the way. It sounds like they're all very much Southern evangelicals mm-hmm. and of all yeah. stripes. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. the, the, the black church is just as outspoken about their sort of pro-life uh, feelings as, as the white church is about their, you know, all, all this stuff. That they're not, it, it, again, it shouldn't, g- given the narrative in, uh, it's not that they're completely staying away from all politics. It's just that they've, they're valuing something above that, which is sort of the, the, the kingdom of God. The gospel, oh, Jesus. I feel like this yeah. is like a whole like rebuttal to my okay boomer thing. I just need to say that. I feel like the Holy Spirit is like pushing me towards just thinking about, I don't know, that 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 grace is this great uh, I mean, we could say be trying to say unifier, but it, grace is like this thing. It's like I do puzzles all the time on the floor with my five year old. And sometimes I just wish all the pieces would fit together because it takes forever and I'm too old to sit on a wood floor and uh, you know, I just wish they would all. Fit. And Grace is this like amazing thing where like the like all the puzzle pieces fit together and they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just I don't know. It's, it's a hopeful, and that's why it's hopeful because it's a miracle. The the other yeah. thing, Sarah, you sent it to us about a new Sesame Street show that's starting yeah. among among uh, in Arabic that's designed yeah. for Syrian refugees. There's a new program called Aslan Simsim or Welcome Sesame in Arabic. Season one is not only about learning the alphabet or counting from one to ten, the show aims to teach social-emotional skills, including coping strategies like counting to five and belly breathing, because it's, it's aimed almost exclusively at uh, children who, have, who are refugees uh, from the Syrian, um, at the, you know, for, from Syria. Uh, one of the, the Sesame workshop held brainstorming workshops in... Um, Lebanon and Jordan before producing the show to bring together arts therapists, uh, psychologists, and writers to help develop this curriculum that realizing that children were struggling to find the language they needed to express emotions, which is crucial for managing their feelings, uh, especially for those who experienced the trauma of war and displacement. But again, you see the seeds of hope growing in among truly the least of these, a bunch of children who've, had to, who've got no home, and a lot of cases it doesn't even seem like they have a house this is being uh, broadcast into tents and uh, things because most of these uh, refugees will be displaced for up to 20 years. It's um, Sarah, what spoke to, to you about it? I mean, I, I think one thing I think about often when I read stuff like this is how we talk about the adults, but we forget that there's this whole, <laughs> there's this whole silent little group there of little ones who um, really experience the worst of it in some ways and really get lost and forgotten. Um, There's a camp that I read about that I'm like a big fan of right now. Um, I think it's called Camp Mariposa. It's run by an organization called Aluna in our country, and they provide um, camps for kids whose parents have either died from opioid addiction or just like are profoundly struggling with it and they don't live with their parents. And it's very similar, like the social emotional stuff. It gives them a space to talk about how angry they are and to talk about how much they miss their mom and dad. I almost can't talk about it. It's so palpable. Um, you know, it reminds me frankly of the work we do with story makers. Um, (laughs) <laughs> like a story makers weren't so Christian and a lot of these kids weren't probably Muslim. We should just back up a box and send it over. You know, like when I flipped through story makers, um, the, the sort of the, the one about the flood, you know, in our own context from Harvey and it asked questions like, have you ever, you know, have you ever been afraid before? It's like, 
that stuff is really, really important to all kids, right? But it's really important to kids in trauma. And I just think Sesame Street is the best. I mean, I've, you know, my mom worked for public television when I was little. And so that was like, Sesame Street was like sacred in our household. But I didn't know until I was much older that it was really developed for kids in, I mean, children of color in urban settings who weren't getting, you know, the kind of pre-K stuff that I got. Um, So it just to me is like, they're able to recognize, you know, in the same way that we would see Mr. Rogers able to recognize in the same way that we're, that we're able to see Curious George recognize. And it, for me, when I read stories about kids like this, it's that, um, it's, it hits, it's like the Botham Jean piece, right? It hits this thing in us that's almost ancient. That's almost, um, this thing that really doesn't make sense. It's a puzzle that doesn't fit together. And it's the thing of reading the gospel and seeing Jesus say to children who were so of little value, you know, in that context, like that they should come to him. I mean, it, it it's the reason people share these stories, right? Who aren't even like, I saw a bunch of people share this Sesame Street thing who aren't even Christian because it hits this thing that it's like, it doesn't make sense that we would take care of children, right? It doesn't make sense. We can make more of them. And I I know that that's like a funny (laughs) thing to say that I shouldn't say, but it's true. I mean, historically, that has been the way we've thought about them. Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. I know, right? (laughs) They, you know, they're good for farming, you know? I mean, they're, you know, there's cultures that don't name children until they're three, right? And so it's so antithetical to the way that the world has always worked to say, Actually, we're going to put Elmo in a tent in the middle of a refugee, you know, situation so that these kids can learn like belly breathing when they get anxious. Like, oh, my God, it's just it's just so beautiful. Well, the the thanks. I mean, I I think that um, while we're on this subject, there's no way to not close, Sarah, with something that you wrote about Dolly Parton. We keep keep talking about this podcast uh, called Dolly Parton's America, which is so remarkable. And we really, you know, when you come across something like this, for me, it's like The Crown Season 3. There's so much uh, wisdom and kind of otherworldly presence in it. And, and, And in terms of The Crown, it's all about... God. Uh, and you see an echo of that, though, in the faith uh, that Dolly Parton and uh, that she evinces not only with her um, songs, but with her person. And Sarah, you wrote a, a piece called When Jesus Tells a Boob Joke, Dolly Parton's America. <laughs> Uh, clickbait. I, clickbait. She's, you say Dolly Parton's America is the one place where you hear a horrific story of Dolly's mistreatment, by usually by men, followed by her simply saying, forgiveness is all there is. Mm. And then you write, uh, you sort of towards the end, I'm going to tell this, uh, read this. uh, I was relieved and fascinated to hear Dolly Parton's America address the great critique of Dolly, namely people insist that she is, quote, not political enough. As though all of those lyrics and all of those stories count for absolutely nothing. Well, the fourth episode of the podcast uh, called Dolly Ticks, ha ha ha, they dive right into this controversy. And they talk about this in 2017. Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton were all at the Emmys. They were Emmy nominees that year. They had, of course, all starred in the movie Nine to Five together decades earlier. And as they approach the microphone to great fanfare, the mood in the room shifts. Jane Fonda quotes a line from the original movie, but directs it at guess who? Donald Trump. Back in 1980, she said in that movie, we refuse to be controlled by a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. And then it's Lily Tomlin leans into the mic and adds, and in 2017, we still refuse. And um, Dolly's face changes completely, standing there. Lily Tomlin goes on to read the prompter and list the nominees for supporting roles, and Dolly sees her chance. She takes to the mic and says, well, I know about support. If it hadn't been for good old support, shock and awe here would be like Flopsy and Droopy. The audience laughs. She is, of course, referring to her boobs. Jad Abumra, the uh, podcast creator, comments, within a few seconds, Dolly had disarmed the whole room. The fallout from this moment was big on both sides. People on the right felt like Dolly should have defended the president. People on the left felt like she should have joined Jane and Lily in the roast. But what got me, this is you, Sarah, writing, and what got Abumrad himself was her reflection on the entire incident. Dolly later said, what I wanted to say is let's pray for the president. Why don't we pray for the president? If we're having all these problems, why don't we just pray? 
It's like I wanted to say that, but I thought, no, keep your damn mouth shut. That won't work either. So, tit joke, when all else fails to be funny. <laughs> so funny. It, it's so funny and so sad. I know. Well, you say that this wrecked me for so many reasons. It also reminded me of how religious people demand that their preachers come down hard on a political stance. We insist that our religious leaders be prescriptive. We do it in the name of knowing what is right and what is wrong, but really we do it because we want our preachers to tell us that we are right, that the people out there are wrong. The best preachers I know absolutely refuse to hand out these modern-day indulgences. Boom. The best preachers I know, Sarah, you're right, are descriptive. They tell stories of the other, knowing that everyone in the room has felt like the other at some point in time. Like Dolly, they remember that everyone has felt pain and struggle, and also like Dolly, they use compassion as the gateway to the heart. Yet perhaps what struck me most about this incident is just how much Dolly struck the posture of Christ. She sacrificed herself in that moment. We we all know that the people who agreed with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin's opinions on the president were just driven further into their stance, and that the people who did not agree were just made angrier. And there stood Dolly in the middle of it all, making a boob joke at her own expense and in the context of a movie about feminism. I mean, my word, she was unwilling to be the one who divided people, so she simply divided herself on behalf of everyone there. It was so hard not to write, like, arms out, tits up, why don't we all pray? Like, it was so hard, because you could just see her sort of, like, saying that, you know what I mean? Like... She just, she's, I mean, this podcast, which first of all, RJ, you were the first person that told me to listen to this. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. But I, I feel like, I feel like I needed this episode because I, Dolly, like a lot of sort of artists that people have loved over time, you know, has gotten this feedback of not saying enough and not doing enough uh, to help. And even in this episode, actually, her sister comes on and it sort of like throws shade at her and says, you know, like Dolly should be doing more kind of thing. Um, so to hear her really speak for herself um, and to hear kind of the line that she lives in and, you know, um, the, the surprise of, of, of knowing that it really is in the gospel where she kind of resides. Um, and that, that really seems to be her answer and that she means it was so powerful to me. So is she still talking? No, I don't know. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> I don't really know. What we she lost said. you, but we can still can just improvise. <laughs> RJ, that's right. So, what did I want to say, Sarah? I just thought your piece was was totally brilliant. You know, and as we're in the middle of a national moment right now, where everyone is taking sides, and it's just it is it's it's crazy the the different stories that people are telling themselves and buying into and, and um, the, the way that we have allowed our, our, to, to ourselves to think that politics is the only thing that matters. It's become our God. Um, she, like those pastors in North Carolina, is like, nope, sorry, not, not playing your game. And, it, and like you said, it just it reminds me of, of Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. Don't worry about that other person. It's about you and it's about me. Um, and he he refused to sort of uh, draw boundaries between insiders and outsiders. So um, it's it's uh, it's very again it is very convicting because it feels so good to be right and to win, uh, and that's what our culture is all about right now. But it's it's a it's a zero sum game. There's there's nothing left in the end but um, scorched earth, you know, victims and victimizers on on both sides. Um, and that's not the way, it's not the way of Jesus. And it's, it's, uh, it's refreshing to see someone with, with the wisdom, the compassion, um, to sort of not, not play that game. And as Jad says, when you go to a Dolly Parton concert, which I've never been to, but now I have to go, it is just shocking to see the breadth of her fans, you know, boomers and millennials, Whoa. you know, <laughs> black and white men and women, you know, uh, coming together at a Dolly Parton concert. Um, even as to be totally honest with you, Sarah, this will be shocking to you as, as someone who, um, is not a big country music fan before I, uh, <laughs> listen to this podcast. Part of me is like, she seems a little bit like a joke, mm. you know, the big hair, the, the outfits, the, you know, she may have had some um, plastic surgery in her life potentially. <laughs> Wait, what? Possibly. She's exactly sh- shocking revelation here on the Mockingcast. She seems, she seems like a joke. <laughs> 
And then you hear her talk and you listen to her music and you think about her story and um, you hear her talk about the people that have wronged her and the way that she has found compassion and forgiveness for them. And you're like, she's a, yeah, she's a saint. She's a modern day saint. And it's, it's pretty, uh, it's inspiring. She's a little, you know, to go back to the CNN piece, um, you know, uh, a little bit like Mr. Rogers in that, in that way too, uh, you know, the way that in Sesame, anyway, that's, we can cut that out, but um, she's a modern day saint. And thanks for your piece, Sarah. Sure. Can you guys hear yeah, me at no, all? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. She does remind me, I mean, I don't want to draw um, too strong a comparison to, as to make him uncomfortable, but she's a little bit like Paul Zoll um, in that she manages to be, um, she manages to disarm people with sort of with what she looks like in the same way that he always manages to disarm people with humor and then get the gospel in. And so people hear it who would not have heard it otherwise. So anyway. Wait, who did you say she reminds you of? Your dad. Oh, wow. Well, well, because no. there, you yeah. know, there is this sense that, that, that she can like disarm, right? With she disarms with boobs, your dad disarms with cultural references and jokes. Yeah. Well, so. uh, no, Sarah, I also uh, just, um, let me just second the, the, what RJ said. I think it's a, a truly kind of prophetic brilliant piece in the proper term of that. And I, I, I think Todd Brewer wrote something about preaching politically in turbulent, in tur- turbulent times and that actually it's a quote-unquote political act not to preach about to, the uh, sort of issues of the day and to continue to maintain that the forgiveness of sins is um, just as radical and necessary and urgent as it ever has been, if not more so. It r- reminds me of that because, I, I, you know, throughout the years with Mockingbird, we've definitely gotten people wishing we'd take sides or make statements as though we were some kind of a church and rather than like an organization and a magazine. But um, you want to say uh, that this woman... Um, Almost instinctually, because, you know, I know that she's, she's clearly extremely smart, but there's a deeper authenticity in the midst of all the glamour and plasticness that is uh, kind of hard to look away from that I find to be uh, um, convincing, I don't know, and hopeful in a way that makes me want to continue doing what it is we do and trying to stick mm-hmm. to uh, the Jesus and uh, in the midst and God's grace in the midst of this, the, the, the enormous temptation to prop up our own side of the fence, and um, mm-hmm. which is just, again, it, as a, it may Maybe it's the Generation X side of the fence. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the you know, um, you know, whatever church denomination you're in or your gender. Or Political affiliation. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I think that these, these, these stories to me, I needed to hear them this week. Of, uh, and again, it's not to discount the convictions, but it's, it is to discount their ultimacy, I think. Um, because what, what is being pointed to here, as you say, it's this, it's this almost like eternal ancient thing that is being activated in a person. And, you know, I also think about, um, when you write about preachers who do this, I, I think about you know, plug here, but the book we released this week from Paul Walker, who's my mentor and friend and was the founding director of, of board, or president of our board of directors of Mockingbird, and he, he's been in some extremely sticky situations and has always preached the gospel, uh, a, a word of comfort and uh, salvation to uh, both the um, the victim and the perpetrator in the midst of when that is not a, a popular thing to do, but I've watched him do it with warmth and with um, love and with poetry. And I think that, uh, yeah, that I, and, and to deal what's much harder than taking some brave stand about something is it's actually takes much more courage, uh, at least in a certain respect, it takes much more courage to, uh, insist that the gospel is still true. Um, even when it appears that all hell is breaking loose. So um, that's what I've seen in him, and those sermons to me are just like one long, uh, you know, corroboration or evidence room of the times in which I've felt that that, that, that description. Uh, and that's what we've received in these, in the, by the way, in these two stories of Dolly Parton and, and of the, what's going on in Syria and in what's going on with the, the church in North Carolina. We've received descriptions. And none of those things would translate to us just because I'm not a, a country singer or I, I'm not a megachurch pastor or, you know, a black guy in, uh, outside Greensboro. We have descriptions that just are sort of a way I'm going to think of, of a proclamation that this is possible and that this is actually happening uh, despite... Uh, 
even in spite of our uh, perceptions, <laughs> and it's and it, and it transcends our 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 often fickle uh, uh, circumstances. And let it be said, they're miracles. They're not something that we're, we're willed into being. They are, they're works of the Spirit. You know, even I think about, uh, anyway, Dolly, Dolly Parton seems a little bit like a, like a miracle. You know, when you hear the story about where that song, I Will Always Love You, comes from, and why she wrote that, um, it's a miracle. And it, it's a result of her um, understanding the gospel and, and trying to uh, be present at a particularly difficult moment, that, that none of these are things that we can bring into being by the force of our own will. They're the result of the workings of the Holy Spirit, inspiring um, miracles uh, in, in the lives and, and works of, of um, his servants. Um, and like you said, just to witness it is, is incredibly hopeful. Maybe, maybe we are not alone. <laughs> maybe there is a force at work in the world uh, for what is, good. What does is, what is, um, uh, um, Batya call it? That a benevolent, divine, forgiving force was at work healing our nation, helping us right the wrongs and atone for the sins and reach beyond the current situation of denial and distrust. Yeah. Same girl. Okay, Same you day. guys are the absolute best. Thank you for oh, thank you for the hope. Right. Anyway, right. talk to you bye soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com, and we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.